Hey everyone, my name is Nathan Forster, and I'm asking the big questions of authors and activists, scholars and survivors, poets and priests, therapists and theologians, and basically everyone in between. This will be a resource for people who, deep in their bones, think that surely God's kingdom is deeper and wider than the box we've sometimes put it in. And so what better way to discover this than by learning people's stories and their specialities, in order that we deepen and widen our perspective on faith, community, society, and life. So journey with me as we go deeper and wider. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about a sensitive topic. And as such, this is a content warning for younger people who might be present, as well as people who've been affected by domestic family violence. For in today's episode, we are talking about domestic family violence. Now, within this topic, we will address how the church has sometimes got their response wrong, and also where the church has done the right thing, and also how the church can do better. We'll also be exploring how to navigate domestic family violence in the light of faith in God. Now, I do also talk about things like forgiveness and verses like turn the other cheek that have unfortunately been weaponized. And we're going to explore then how we might understand such topics and verses in light of domestic family violence. Now, in exploring these questions and more, I had a conversation with Erica Hammonds. Erica initially trained to be a human rights lawyer with a BA slash LLB from the University of Melbourne. But she found herself drawn to express the same desire for justice within the church. And this eventually led her to ministry in Sydney. She's the senior assistant minister at St. Barnabas Anglican Church, Broadway, where she mostly works to support and raise up leaders. And she's also the spokesperson for Common Grace's domestic and family violence justice team. The team works to highlight and address the problems of domestic and family violence within the church and within Australian society, and to provide resources and support to people who have experienced domestic and family violence and those who love them. Common Grace is a movement of 47,000 people who love Jesus and justice. Once again, this is a content warning for today's episode. So please be aware of your own capacity to listen to what can be a very emotionally difficult topic to talk about. Here is today's conversation with Erica Hammonds. So tell our listeners about yourself. What's your faith journey? Well, I I didn't grow up a Christian. I my family were not churchgoers or believers, but my grandma was a Christian and she took me to church when I was a little kid a couple of times, you know, just at Christmas or whatever. Hmm. But I knew so little about it that when she told me that we were going to meet the pastor after the service, I legitimately thought we were having spaghetti. Um, <laughs> yes. had no idea about anything. Um, but I was quite curious. I think I was just a kid who wanted to know about what life was about and mm. pretty pretty earnest little kid, a bit of a goody two-shoes. And I think I just wanted to know if I was living um, for the right things. Yes. I think I had pretty strict categories in my head about what those were. And so I think when I went to university, I moved from the country to the city to study and um, 
literally stumbled into a Bible study. Didn't realize right. that what yeah. it was, but saw a couple of people in a room that I knew and um, I was an extrovert and, you know, excited yeah, yeah. to be in the big city. So I popped my head in and then realized that they were all reading the Bible and um, had a minor freak out. But I was also, I think, curious because I'd never really explored that properly before. Yep. Um, and I kind of thought of university as the time where you explore everything and then you, you work out from that what, yeah, totally. what's true and what's good and what's worth living for. Um, and so I was like, well, let's let's add that to the, <laughs> the plate and see how that goes. Um, and then quickly found myself confronted by how different Christianity was than what I assumed it was. Sure. Um, really had to rethink that and then went on a process that probably lasted me about a year before I ended up finding myself more and more drawn to Jesus and realizing that I'd have to kind of go all in with him. Yeah. It took a while and it was in a way fairly reluctant, um, but I've never regretted it. Yeah. (laughs) It's been a great thing. Yeah. And you mentioned as well that you felt like you had to kind of unpack things quite quite early on. Is that correct? Did you, did yeah. you think? Yeah. yeah. Do you mind me yeah, asking what, what exactly those those things were? What were some of the things you kind of saw that you had to kind of question or think through? I think I just always had this assumption that Christianity was a really moralistic religion and that at the very best interpretation of that, you just have to try your hardest to be the best person that you can be. And, and just sort of hope that God will accept you, accept that. Sure, um, yeah, that very quick pro quo, that some standard you have to hit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and at the worst of that, but that made you really self-righteous and a bigot. Mm. Um, and so that obviously wasn't very appealing to me. Sure. Um, but when I started reading the Bible with these Christians, I discovered grace. Wow. And to be honest, I think I was more offended by that than anything else at the beginning because I think it did confront my self-righteousness. It sort of it suggested that my, whatever I'd been trying to do to be a good person actually wasn't enough and would never be enough and that I'd have to come to God on a totally different basis. Mm. Um, and I didn't want that in the beginning. Um, I wanted to come on my own merit rather than via grace. Yes, yes. Um, but obviously, over time, I've recognised the real gift that grace is, and that's a far better position to be in before God than anything that I was trying to achieve before. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow! And um, in terms of you getting involved in in church leadership, when, when did that start to to emerge for you? It started pretty quickly. So I was living at a residential college when I became a Christian. That was where I found the Bible study. Mm-hmm. So I found myself leading a Bible study within a few months um, and then got involved in leadership on in my campus group and in my church um, the next year in, in kind of different forms. Um, I was studying to be a human rights lawyer at the time. Yep. So I, like, I think originally was still just thinking, I'm going to be a human rights lawyer somewhere in South America. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. And I'll be involved in a church. and But I just ended up finding myself more and more drawn to ministry. Mm. Um, and so I kind of got to the point when I was in my final year of uni where someone asked me to consider just trying out ministry for a bit. And I thought I should probably 
do the low-paying ministry job before I do the higher-paying more job. <laughs> sure, um, yes. Before I get used to having money and things. Um, so I tried out ministry and just never looked back. Um, so it started pretty early, basically straight out of uni. Yep, um, wow. And have just been in different ministry roles ever since. Yeah, wow, wow. So yeah. how did you get involved in the advocacy of, of dom- domestic family violence? Um, One of the great courses that we were able to do when I did my law degree was one about public interest lawyering and it meant that we got to pick a project that we were interested in and um, research it, try and develop some expertise on it and and think about what kind of alternative justice means there were for um, people who'd experienced injustice. And the thing that I picked was domestic and family violence and... um, I picked it mostly because I think what a law degree, particularly at the uni that I studied it at, does for you is it just tells you all the ways that the justice system fails to provide justice. Yeah, um, right. Okay. Interesting. And it, it kind of leads you to, to kind of look for alternatives. Yeah. Um, and so I was really interested in and kind of devastated by how poorly the justice system is often set up to care for people who've been made vulnerable in their homes. Mm. Um and so I started exploring it from that point of view. And then when I when I moved to Sydney and met some of the people from Common Grace, mm. we were sort of brainstorming about what are some areas of advocacy that we could get involved in and recognise that there was a gap there, that not only is there a gap in the legal system for how we care for survivors of domestic and family violence, but there's actually also a gap in the church. Yeah, right, um, yeah. And I think around about that time, Julia Baird's articles were coming out. I can't actually remember whether hers came out first or whether that was just sort of part of the air that we were in at the time. Yeah. Um, but there was just this recognition that this is an issue and it's a far bigger issue than what I think any of us was ever aware of. Mm. Um, and because of that, we're clearly not doing a good job um, not only of failing to prevent these sorts of things but also just failing to care for the real people who are before us in our churches. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so I just really felt this sense that this is an area that we need to put time and energy and prayer mm. and resources into mm. and see if there's anything under God that we can do to bring comfort and change to people in that. Yes, yes. I mean, that's the thing. It isn't an abstract thing. It's something that's a very real lived experience for for people both in the church and outside the church world. And what would it mean to be a people who embody the kingdom in this this particular space and area? So so this was quite a rather new new area to be explored in the, the church then? Where I mean, I did a lot of research when we started up the group with Common Grace just to see what was out there because we didn't want to be arrogant and we didn't want to sort of reinvent, reinvent the wheel. And we, we became aware of, you know, different blogs or websites that people had set up where they were trying their best to bring these issues to people's attention and to provide resources for survivors and those sorts of things. But there wasn't a huge amount out there and there wasn't a huge amount of attention given to them Mm. um and there wasn't anything that kind of brought people together across denominations sure um across different kind of belief backgrounds Mm. um Mm. i think since then 
we've been really excited to see lots of denominations have produced their own resources and they've really been kind of plugging into um, their own denominational backgrounds. But we're still, I think we still see that you need something interdenominational that sort of speaks across the board. Mm. Um, mm. And what were what was the the church Australia the Australian church's response to when when these resources were starting to be developed by Common Grace? It's mostly been really positive. Okay. Um, it's been really encouraging. I mean, it's encouraging in one sense because it's it's great that we're able to provide something that people need and value. Mm. It's also awful every time you're mm. told that it's been helpful and mm. encouraging because um, that means that there are real people, women and children and, and sometimes men who who need those resources. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's a really, it's kind of a bittersweet thing to know that people have been taking these up and finding them to be useful or helpful. But um We've, we've had some backlash as well. I mean, I think it's confronting to have to think through the fact that there are people who we love in mm. our churches and sit alongside and pray with and have respected who might actually have been complicit in some really, really horrible things. Wow. So I think any time you kind of bring that to attention, um, in, it's a bit of a case of shoot the messenger that people can get pretty, pretty upset with us about having brought that to their attention or, or making them to think about the possibility of that even. So we do get a little bit of pushback on that. But on the whole, I think people have just been, we've kind of realised that people have been longing for yes. resources in this area. Yes. And they're just really grateful that they've been provided for them. Yes. So in terms of the work that Common Grace has done, have you also yeah. had the response of the people on the ground, the people who have been victims of domestic family violence. It's, it sounds like in what you're saying before, there's a, a sense of liberation almost. Yeah, I think there really is. Um, oh, I'm going to cry, but I think what we hear from is just women who have been told by their husbands or partners and sometimes, most of the time, unwittingly by their churches that... Um, what they need to do to be faithful to God is to stay in an environment that is really unsafe mm. and oh dear. Um, to keep putting their bodies and their well-being on the line in the name of Jesus. Um, and that just, because it comes with the, the name of Jesus and with the weight of these spiritual convictions that are really important to us and go to the heart of who we are and how we experience the world. Mm. I think when when someone opens up the possibility that that is not what God is saying to you yes. and yes. that instead actually what he says gives you freedom and freedom to be safe and um, freedom to know that that is not what you deserve or what you have to keep putting up with. Mm. Um, mm. And that, that God doesn't stand behind your abuser, but actually stands behind you. Wow, yes. There's something enormously, enormously powerful and free in that. Yes, yes. That the most deepest powerful force or, in our context, persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit behind the universe actually loves and wants you to be out of the harm and to, yeah, yeah 
And I think yeah. you, you almost touched on another question that I was going to ask, and, and that is if you have anything else you believe that God does uniquely say to some, to people who are in domestic family violence. Well, I mean, I often come back to the psalm that says that God is near to the brokenhearted. Mm. Mm. Um, and so I think I hear God saying that he is near to them, that he knows the depths of their pain, that he sees perfectly clearly what to other people is murky or confusing where they themselves have been deceived or other people have been deceived, God actually knows completely what the truth is. Yes, wow. And he's able to adjudicate that, that he is the advocate mm. that they most desperately need. Yes. That he's the healer mm. and that he's the healer who knows that, like, there are some particular contours of trauma and abuse that are so hard not only for other people to understand, but even for a survivor to understand for themselves. It's so complicated and there are so many layers of experience and things that get messed up for you yeah. in terms of what your, what your kind of purchase of reality is, where you can feel safe and why, how you can listen to your body's own signals about pain yeah. and your own boundaries. All of those things are so complicated and I think I find enormous comfort in knowing that it's God who's the healer. Like he, he sees that map. He knows what that looks like, and yeah. he's the one who's able to lead us through that. Mm. Um, there's something really beautiful about knowing that God is Lord even over those things, and that means that he, he's able to take care of us. Yes, when other people have not, and when we're not even completely sure how to take hold of that care ourselves. Yes. And to know that God is is close, as you said, to the to the broken heart, yeah. to those who weep. Yeah. So, in terms of the current state of domestic family violence, what is our current state of um, of domestic um, domestic family violence in society today, and also particularly in the church world? Yeah, it's a great question, and it it's a tricky one to answer because it's really hard to get accurate reporting on these things. Um, and so some of the things that we measure are the really horrible um, but more definitive things like how many women have been killed by current or former partners. Um, we average about two per week in Australia. Oh, my goodness. Um, in the past, in the past four, well, not the past fortnight, but a couple of weeks ago there were seven women who were killed in a little over a week um, by their partners um, as a result of domestic or family violence. Mm. So that's obviously a horrifying statistic and reality. Um, yes. It's harder to measure things that are not illegal. So there are certain things that fall under the category of domestic and family violence that are not technically illegal. Oh, my goodness, no way. Unjust. I didn't know They're that. Far wrong. out. Yeah, but there are, there are certain kind of boundaries that... Um, Coercive control might might look like stalking, and that is illegal, but there are certain kind of steps before that that are still abusive and wrong, but mm. don't kind of trigger a legal response. So it, it can be harder to measure um, the incidence of those sorts of things. Mm. So it's a little bit tricky to know. Mm. Um, but I guess anecdotally what we're discovering is that it is far more prevalent than anyone has ever thought. Yes. 
Mm. Um, I think it's one in one in four women will have been sexually abused by the time they are sixteen. Right mm. after the age of sixteen. Oh dear. Yeah. Oh my word. And in terms of the church, is it? I mean, I, as you said, it's obviously hard to measure these things. But is there yeah. is there any sense about the landscape of what it looks like within the church world? We there's currently funding being put into doing some research on that. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've recognised now that we are working in this field and um, seeing other people step up and work in this field too is that there really isn't that much research and what's been done has often been done kind of hastily or uh, it just hasn't really been able to produce the sorts of data that we might need to get an accurate picture on things. So people are putting the time and energy into finding out that stuff now, but we don't know for sure. Mm. So a lot of our research about prevalence um, and kind of how churches relate to this topic and to victims and survivors comes out of the UK and comes out of the US. Mm, mm. Um, so we know things like ministers and lead, church leaders will tend to overestimate the quality of their pastoral care for a victim and survivor. Yeah, um, okay. So if you, if you kind of survey them alongside the survivor um, or victim that they have been caring for, mm. the victim survivor will rank them much lower than they'll rank themselves. Um ministers will kind of opt out of uh, certain surveys because they don't think that they need um, <laughs> they don't need to be taught. Sure. Wow. Um, okay. Okay. My word. Yep. Yeah, so there are a couple of US studies that sort of demonstrated that. And then there's been some good work that's come out of the UK, but I don't have it in front of me at the moment, so I couldn't reference it. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. No, that's fine. And so what are some of the biggest misconceptions of um, domestic violence and domestic family violence? In the church or just in general? Let's start with the in general and then we'll move specifically to church. I think maybe in general there's just an assumption that it's a bit of a, it's a simpler kind of thing than it might be for a victim or survivor. So mm. I think when we hear, from an outsider's perspective, if you hear that a woman gets beaten on a regular basis and that her husband controls all of her access to money and um, he will he will take money out of the account when he knows that she's going to the shop so that she will be humiliated when she goes to pay for her groceries because she doesn't have any money in the account and that he uh, dictates what she can wear and who she can see. I think all of those in some ways, when it's described to you narratively like that, mm. Mm. It feels obvious, right? That feels obviously abusive, obviously wrong. Um, and so it's hard for us to imagine that anyone would be confused about that or uncertain about it or that anyone would kind of misidentify that. Mm. Um, but I think when you're actually living it, or even when you're an observer kind of seeing it, abusers are really, really good at deceiving and manipulating and using half-truths to abuse so you will see that, and it'll come to you across. It come across to you as, "Oh, my wife is such a spender, and you know we have to work so hard on the budget, um, and you know she's made some really irresponsible choices in the past. So you know we've just had to really, you know, we've both decided we have to crack down on our spending, and so it'll look reasonable from the outside rather than abusive." 
is. Mm, yeah. um, so I think we just have this assumption that it should be obvious to us when someone's being abused mm. and it should be obvious to the person being abused that that's what it is. Mm. And it should be pretty simple to get out of it if that is the thing that's happening. Mm. Um, whereas I think actually it's enormously complicated. Mm. Part of how the abuse operates is that it needs to co-opt even the person being abused into participating in it, not in the sense of um, welcoming the abuse, but just in the sense of kind of believing that they have no other option but to receive it or that they deserve it in some way or if they've been able to do things better or differently, that particular expression of abuse might not have happened to them. So if I had managed to get the house together before he came home, um, maybe he wouldn't have blown up at me and threatened our kids. Um, so it's just that sense that, like, oh, maybe maybe I could have done something about it. Wow. Yeah, wow. It's, it's a lot more complicated than I think people realise. Oh, and that is why yeah. it can take a long time for someone to seek help. Yes, yes. And do you find as well that the people who, when they do eventually seek help, that they they themselves for a long period of time just weren't aware of what they were experiencing as, as being abused. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And even, even when they're seeking help, mm. um, they might seek help for kind of one expression of it, but not for the whole picture. Yeah. You know, I'd love for my husband to stop hitting me, for example, um, without thinking about the whole picture of where there's control mm. um, and a misuse of power. Um, and I think that's partly because it's, it's it's too confronting even for yourself to accept that these are the things that have happened to you. Um, and so you don't, you don't try and deal with the whole thing and you won't label it as abuse. You'll just recognise that you feel trapped um, or mm. that you feel belittled. Mm. But abuse can sometimes feel like too big and too dramatic a label. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that, and so as a result, people feel a bit reserved to to come forward or to to believe yeah. that it might be really happening to them that's in the right. full extent of things. Yeah. So that's within the wider society. Are there any specific misconceptions within the the world of church? Yeah, I mean, how much time have we got? Uh, all the time you want. There <laughs> are <laughs> um, a number of them. So I think one misconception is the person that I respect and look up up to in the faith could not possibly be abusive. Uh, I, have, I think I've actually, just anecdotally, yep. I've had more contact with wives of ministers who have been abused by them than by... And, and by people who are in leadership um, than yeah. I have by people who are not in positions of leadership. Um, that's a really scary thought, but in wow. some ways it, it makes sense. Yeah. Because, yeah, because I guess people who enjoy positions of power um, will often occupy them mm. and some of them will misuse them. Um, so I guess there's that sense that just because a person I know preaches really great sermons or even has partially cared for me in a way that was meaningful doesn't mean that they are consistently um, loving across the board. Yeah, That's really scary and, and a discomforting thought. Um, and that doesn't mean that every minister is an abuser, but it just means that when, when someone does actually come forward with a claim about them, we shouldn't dismiss that just because we have benefited from their ministry. Yes, yes, that makes sense. Um, 
So that's one misconception. I think another one is probably just that, yeah, teaching like forgiveness and reconciliation and all of those sorts of things um, apply in a, a kind of a direct, uncomplicated way to an abuse context. Yeah, right. Um, so in particular, we see people um, who are being abused by their partner and they'll, they'll talk to a minister and maybe they'll talk to other people in their church. And I think, you know, most people kind of have a framework of like, well, marriage is for life and you just try and work things out. And so it falls into a category in their head, which is um, relationship issues. They need relationship counselling rather than, no, this woman needs to find a person who's going to support her. Mm. Um, to work through the abuse yes. in a context where she has to be vulnerable in front of her husband about the things that he does mm. is not a, a context that is safe for her. Mm. Um, so just an assumption that kind of everything falls into a category of like, work it out, it's probably a normal relationship struggle. And so we just apply fairly generic relationship tools to that. Mm. Um, oh gosh. Not okay. super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of a, a question I did want to ask as well, like, because people have often weaponized even even beautiful concepts like forgiveness and turn the other cheek, but they've yeah. weaponized it yeah. into these contexts. Have you seen that? Have you seen those otherwise good tenets being weaponized in this context? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when people talk about abuse, they talk about physical abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, um, social abuse. But another category is spiritual abuse, yes. and, it, and it means taking things that we all hold to and are doing our best to live out in our lives um, and using them as weapons against a person. And, and so it might be that a person will um, verbally abuse their partner and see that their partner is visibly upset by that and demand that they forgive them because that's what Christ would have us do. Mm, um, and maybe they'll go to church on Sunday and the sermon will reinforce that message. Um, not unreasonably in the sense that the person in the pulpit doesn't necessarily know how that's being heard by a victim or how it's being misused by an abuser. Mm, mm. But they'll say, you know, sometimes forgiveness is hard and it'll feel costly and, uh, you know, we have to bear that cost upon ourselves, just like Jesus bore the cost for, for our forgiveness with himself. Um, and so in a context of abuse, that just ends up being a weapon that, that beats this woman down again oh about what her responsibility is um, to her partner. Mm, mm. Uh, yeah, so I've said before that anything can be a weapon in the hands of an abuser. Yes. Um, they can turn anything into something to manipulate and control and hold down another person. Yes. But even good doctrine, um, even good teaching can be a weapon. Yes. Um, because it's about their commitment to misuse any form of vulnerability or any form of power. My goodness. Um, mm. So what does the, let's say that preacher at the front who may or may not be aware of what's going on, Mm, let's yeah. let's assume not aware for the for the context. Yeah. What what should that preacher be be saying when they do approach a passage like in the Sermon on the Mount where it does talk about forgiveness yeah. and enemy and enemy love will turn yeah. the other cheek? I mean, I know this is always crossed into unpacking those scriptures, but it might be important. Yeah, 
what's what's yeah, you mindful yeah. of with with that it's tricky and i have empathy for the preacher like that's mm. a position i've been in and um when you're kind of feeling the pressure of all sorts of other things when you're writing a sermon it's hard to feel like you, you're adding another kind of um thing to think about mm. um so it is a challenge but i think there are a couple of options yep. one is just to assume that something that you're saying always has the potential to be misheard or misapplied Mm. and to teach against that just as much as you're teaching for the positive application of it. Mm. Um, And so to say, if I'm teaching on a sermon on the Mount um, and the meek will inherit the earth, I want to define the parameters of what meekness looks like as clearly as possible so that um, there's no room for anyone to think that meekness means making someone else making me as small as possible. Mm, yes, yes. Um, so I'm just kind of saying it's this, but it's also not this. Yes. Sometimes that means explicitly naming the domestic and family violence angle of that. Yep. Um, yep. Abusers will often use forgiveness theology as a weapon against, you know, it's being as explicit as that. But, I mean, no one wants to be the broken record on one particular hobby horse. So I think you can just speak about it a little bit more broadly and um, and just say, look, what this doesn't mean is this. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean that forgiveness is costly. It was costly to God, but God himself bore that cost and he hasn't demanded that we bear it where mm. the other person has not repented, yes. has not changed their behaviour yes. and has not provided a safe environment for us. Mm. Um, God doesn't demand that of us mm. because he recognizes the difference between us and him yes. and the kind of power and freedom he has yes. and the difference between our power and freedom. Yes, yes. And, um, yeah. I think sometimes you can't you can't do all of that in a sermon sure. and you probably shouldn't attempt to do all of it in a sermon every week. That mm. would make it a tough job for all of your listeners. But there are times when you can provide other resources for people so we, we preached on um, 1 Peter a few years ago in my church and I got the passage that talked about wives submitting to their husbands. It comes just after uh, Peter has talked about um, slaves submitting even to abusive masters. And so there's just a bunch of stuff in there that yeah. is really tricky. Yeah, totally. Um, really hard. And obviously I wrestled with that as much as possible and, and put as much of what I could to be kind of sensitive and discerning in my sermon. Mm. But I also just recognise there's a bunch of stuff that I will not be able to do justice to if I try. Sure. Um, and so we just provided a whole range of resources and articles that looked at the particular domestic and family violence angle on that. There are lots of experts who have written on why 1 Peter 2 mm. and 3 um, should not be interpreted as a call for wives to stay with abusive husbands yes. or so to submit to abuse. Mm. Um, and so we just made those available. We had several of the, several copies printed out at church just for anyone to grab and we put them up on our website as well for anyone to access um, in the privacy of their own home. Mm. Um, mm. And I think that's a way of kind of like making sure that the people who really do need to dig into that because it's relevant to them yes. can and will. Yes. Yes, that the people in leadership will actually be mindful of these realities as yeah. they as they teach on yeah. particular verses that can be misconstrued to to weaponize yeah. those who are that, doing the abuse. Yeah, and I think that also means equipping other people in your church who have pastoral responsibility. So one of the things that we do when we're teaching on something like that, like recently we taught on the Book of Judges, and I had the 
the, the sermon on the Levite and the concubine from Judges 19 to 21, uh, which is a horrible story of a woman who is gang raped. And mm. there's, there's no avoiding just how awful that story is. Um, and yet we wanted our, people in our Bible studies to be studying it and studying the book of Judges as a whole. Um, so one of the things that we did with, for, for our leaders is just held a special training event for them where we looked through that particular passage and then thought more broadly about um, how to teach Bible passages that have distressing content in a, in a sensitive way. And we just gave our leaders a little bit more lead time to wrestle with that so that when people did actually come to it in their own Bible study, mm. um, at least the people who had a bit more pastor, on the ground pastoral involvement yes. yeah. um, were just that little bit more equipped to respond to it and had worked through some of the ways that these passages can be understood or yes. misunderstood. Yes. I think that's part of what I, I see in churches, that sometimes that middle layer is missing. Yes, um, yes. And we I don't th- equip our leaders. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think as well, like in terms of equipping leaders, especially the church, which do value the scriptures to, to understand that actually when, when you do look at these verses in context, such as the one in Judges or even the Sermon on the Mount or, or Peter's letters, that actually there are other ways to read those texts uh, as if we are the people who are, have gone through abuse reading those texts and allowing ourselves to see with those eyes how to actually yeah. contextualise what might be otherwise beautiful passages but within the context of what might be happening uh, in their lives. So, That's right. And I think hmm. I think sometimes that can be interpreted as we're finding ways around these passages, but actually I think it's more um, working hard to be as faithful as possible to them and recognising that they were written to people who actually had experienced yes. a variety of different forms of abuse and exactly. suffering. Yes. And so if they spoke good news to those people then, they must speak the same good news to us now. Yes. 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 No, absolutely. So if you don't want me asking, because I know that these verses of forgiveness and turning the other cheek do turn up in scripture what yeah. what would things like turning the other cheek or forgiveness mean in the context of those suffering abuse yeah i think that's a really really good and interesting and difficult question i think if i'm thinking more broadly than just turn the other cheek but that the kind of injunction or the encouragement that we have to forgive mm. um what you see in the gospel model of forgiveness mm. is that God forgives us abundantly, but he He does that with the full recognition and the full kind of publication of our sin. Um, yes, yes. It's not a forgiveness that papers over that or that allows us to sweep that under the carpet, um, but on the cross, all of that's published, like it's, it's public, it's recognized, yeah, wow. yeah. and the only way that we appropriate that is when we say, yes, that is my sin, that mm. is, I sent Jesus there, he's carrying mine, I fully recognize that, and I, I repent of that. Mm. Um, we don't get forgiveness through any other means. There's not a kind of a backdoor version of it that 
allows us to pretend that we didn't actually need forgiveness mm. or that um, the things that sent Jesus to the cross were kind of like slightly less significant than it's been made out or mm. anything like that. It's a full embodied reckoning with yes. our sins. Yes, yes. Accompanied with a very powerful call to turn away from those things. Yes, yes. And to live a new life empowered by the Spirit. Um, and so I think if that is our model, and it should be our model, I think, mm. um, and that Jesus encountered that willingly, like that he, he says in John, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. Wow. Um, I think if all of those things are the model, then firstly no one can demand that you forgive another person. You mm. have to be able to lay that down willingly. No one can hold that over you. Um, but also no one can demand that you forgive another person who hasn't published their sin yep. in an appropriate form. Yep. Um, in terms of if they have not, if they've refused to face that fully with you, just one-on-one, um, then there's no demand that you forgive them mm, mm. because they have not fully reckoned with what is what needs to be forgiven. Yes, yes. Wow. Um, and particularly if they've done that in a way that has affected you publicly, then I think that does, particularly in a church context, um, that does need some recognition within the church. I think that will look different for different people, but especially if that person is a leader, I think they need to publicly confess what they've done. Mm. And unless they've done that, and in a way that didn't kind of minimise or um, euphemise what they've done, then um, I don't think any forgiveness is called for there. Mm. Mm. Yes, yes. Yeah, wow. No, thank you for, for clarifying that. And I guess as well, like we've we've turned the other cheek. It also doesn't mean to be a doormat. It, it's not a it's not a way of because often people have weaponized that other half, which is that yeah, turn the other right. cheek. Like yeah. that. It certainly doesn't mean that at all. No, and I think there's a sense in which you shame the other person if they if they slap your other cheek. Mm. I think that's yes. part of what um, is happening when Jesus talks about that. Yes. Yes, no, absolutely. And obviously I'm aware that a lot of those passages do actually have to take proper proper time to unpack. So I, I won't obviously yeah. put put that on, on, on you or in, in this <laughs> particular moment, but it's just something that I wanted to name for, for people to be aware of that yeah. Yeah, there actually are ways of looking at these passages, which you're right, when people have, it's, it's people who have weaponized the text as opposed to the richness of the text itself when understood in the context of a people who were actually under under the, the hammer of empire, the, the actually under yeah. abuse of, of a variety of forms. That actually, when read in light of the fact that these were a people in abusive realities, that actually what it means to turn the other cheek and to forgive takes takes the fullness of their experience into account. That's right. And I think we also have a lot of examples of people in the Bible who run from danger. Yes. David runs from mm. Saul. Mm. He doesn't think that it's his personal responsibility under God to endure Saul's abuse. Mm. He yes. recognizes that as a person made with dignity and value, mm. that part of being faithful to God is to recognize and live in accordance with that value and, and not let that be kind of taken from you or undermined. Paul runs from cities where he's being abused. Yep. 
He doesn't consider that to be his kind of unqualified responsibility for the gospel. Yes. Yeah, he's willing to he's willing to do, you know, tough things in the name of getting the gospel out there. But I've been kind of pleasantly surprised when I've read Acts and read through the Pauline epistles to like recognise no Paul like takes his well being seriously. Oh, he like, does. He, Very seriously, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I think there's there's something really helpful for us there that when you can look at the model of people who are living faithfully for God, um, it actually often looks really different from how those the teachings of God can sometimes be abstracted. Mm. Mm. No, absolutely. I actually I love the fact that you pointed out those times in the Book of Acts. I, I hadn't thought about it in that context, but you're right. It's you know, it's not a it's not a twisted martyrdom of just well, I'm just going to stay under no. under what's happening. It's actually a recognition of like, actually, you know what? Like, I need to get out of here, and yeah, there are other things that need to be done, and I'm not staying in, in this this context. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So, what are what are some ways? Uh, this is a loaded. This is a big question, so I'm, <laughs> I'm aware that this might be a hard one to answer, but. Perhaps even if you could touch on some some ways to have healing if someone um, has experienced domestic violence or domestic family violence or abuse for that matter. Mm. Oh, that is a big one. And I, I have actually written an article about that for Common Grace that people can find yep. um, that is called How to Find Healing. Um, mm. And I'd recommend people read that. And we're, we're actually going to be trying to produce a lot more resources um, for survivors of abuse in the next um, year or so. We're working with another organisation to produce a handbook for them. Um, and so maybe people can look out for that. Absolutely. To get a fuller picture of it. But just to sort of start with it, I, yeah. think, um, I think one thing is to really reckon with the fact that what you have experienced is abuse. Mm. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that can t- curtail healing or make it, uh, more complicated is where you kind of are not completely sure whether that's a label you can take hold of and apply to yourself. Mm. Um, it's confronting to do it, but I think what it what enables for you is just um, often there will be all sorts of feelings of shame and guilt and personal responsibility that you will carry and that will kind of stand in the way of your healing unless you know that they were put on you by someone else and not earned by you. Yes, wow. Um, yes. Mm. And so, I've, you know, I've talked to women who, I've talked to one woman whose boyfriend was so critical of her that she she ended up having to write two notebooks full of his so-called encouragements to her about what she needed to change. Two notebooks full of these things. All right. And I think recognising that what he was doing was abusive opens a doorway for her to look at those notebooks and see them for what they really are, not not as a kind of a record of all of her failures, but actually as a record of his failures. Mm. Um, Wow. So I think, one, take hold of that label as much as that it's helpful to you. I think it can free you from unnecessary burdens of guilt and shame and responsibility. Mm. Um, and then take hold of what God's own perspective is on what has happened to you. Um, I think, like I said, this is such murky territory because you have one narrative from your abuser, you have your own complex um, assessment of what has happened to you 
for yourself and then you've got your society's interpretation of it, which is often muddled. And, um, your church might have one understanding of it but that's sort of mostly true but it's only 60% of the picture or whatever. Mm. I think all of those things can get in the way of healing um, because it's the truth that sets us free. So um, if you can... If you can know that God knows exactly what happened and he knows exactly what labels to give it and exactly what is owed because of those things Mm. and exactly what makes those things right and that he gives you a totally different set of identities before him as his beloved child, known, adopted by him, Mm. chosen by him, loved, protected, cared for by him, nurtured by him, all of those sorts of things. I think if you can see God's perspective, um, that helps to unravel a whole other set of perspectives Mm. Um, Mm. because his is the best one and it's the best form of authority (laughs) um, because it's it's an authority that blesses and releases us. Absolutely. Um, So as much as possible, I think, I, I know lots of women particularly if there's been spiritual abuse. Um, a lot of women find parts of the Bible really difficult to grapple with. Mm, mm. Um, but if you can find parts of the Bible that feel safe to you mm. and give yourself the time and space to really meditate on them yes. and um, to hold up what that part of the Bible says to you against what what other things were said to you and to allow the Bible to speak more more powerfully or more clearly to you than those things. Mm. So even just to say to yourself, I know I was I was told that I'm worthless, um, but 1 Corinthians tells me that I was bought with the precious blood of Christ. Yeah. Um, I think if you can kind of start to, um, in a way, compare and contrast your experience, mm. Um, mm. the power of the word of God will, will start to work its way in your life. Yes, yes. Wow. Um, I think telling people, but being wise and careful about who you tell can be a helpful thing. Mm. Um, and usually I suggest that you start with experts, um, a GP, a counsellor, psychologist, yes. social worker, the mm. police where that's appropriate. Mm. Um, telling your story is enormously important. I mean, that's why we testify as Christians. Mm. Um, and it's part, again, of, of like reclaiming the narrative of who you are and what's happened. Yes. Um, and about bringing other people into it so that's not something that you are just trying to work through yourself but actually taking hold of the resources that our community is or can mm. be. Mm. Um, yes. But I definitely suggest that you start with experts before you kind of go to others just mm. because um, that's a really vulnerable position to be in. Um. Yes. And you want people who you can feel like have some reasonable expectations that they might handle that well. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there are lots of other things I'd say, but those are probably the, sure. the unique points. Sure. And I'll certainly be be putting in the show notes the resources that have come out and uh, will be coming out as well for to unpack yeah, great. a bit Thanks. more. That's okay. Maybe just the last question. What can we as the church do in light of in light of domestic family violence or domestic violence or abuse in, in these forms? I think if I could say one thing to the church, it is to learn more. Hmm. Um, I've seen well-meaning Christians and ministers and church leaders 
really take hold of this message that this is horrible and it's happening in our churches and we need to do something. But unfortunately, they've kind of wanted to act before they've learned. Mm. And um, I've seen that be harmful in a few instances. So my, my kind of essential first step is to stop and learn before you teach or before you attempt to act. Um, read our resource that we created for Common Grace. Read your own denomination resources. Mm. Mm. You know, every denomination has them now. Um, go to the ABC Religions website and read through the stories of women that they collated there about their own experiences of abuse in church context. Um, talk to your local women's shelter mm. and the social workers and domestic family violence liaison offices there and just find out more. I think that gives yes. you a better foundation for anything else that you then decide to do um, and pray. Mm. Mm. <laughs> the, the kind of change that we need in our churches, yes, will require things like different legislation and funding and support and policies and training of leaders and all of those sorts of things. But um, the real, the deep work has to come from God's powerful, supernatural transforming of us. Mm. Mm. Wow. And it's not a it's not a useless or a worthless thing to do to give that to God and, and to ask for his, his work in our churches. Mm. Thank you so much, Erica. This has been... This has been a powerful interview and the work that you do with Common Grace is just astounding. Thank you so much, Erica, for for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you. It's been really great. That was today's episode with Erica Hammonds. Before we close today's episode, I want to seek the safety of you, the listener. If today's episode has prompted you to seek help in response to today's episode topic, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or call the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counselling Service on 1800 737 732. To learn more about what Common Grace does in relation to seeking domestic and family violence justice, visit commongrace.org.au slash domestic underscore violence. Also, check out the website, saferresource.org.au, which is a resource to help Australian churches understand, identify and respond to domestic and family violence.